stay low, go fast, kill first, die last. One shot, one kill, no luck, all skill. Hello, this is Risky Krisky, and you've stumbled upon my podcast. I'm also on YouTube, so go check that out. But if you like all things shit hits the fan, minute man, prepper, medical skills, and just pretty much anything Red Dawn type invasion, well, this is your place. Buckle up for safety, motherfucker, because we're about to go balls to the wall. Risky Krisky out. What's up, guys? This is Risky Krisky, and welcome to another podcast, LARPing Live. Today, we've got a good buddy of mine, Mech Medic with us mech how you doing buddy pretty good how about yourself oh i can't complain just uh like i was saying before we started recording got paint all over my hands from painting another rifle you know how that is (laughs) (laughs) yes (laughs) it happens (laughs) well i'm glad to have you though man i'm uh really excited to be on here awesome so you are yet another individual who i first heard about uh via john from uw gear and alpha charlie concepts He's kind of hooked me up with um, <laughs> people to kind of keep an eye out for in the the industry and the culture. I am honored that he uh, that he did that. He's uh, I've interacted with him a few times. Uh, I've got some of his uh, some of his lawn gear. Um, in fact, I've got a one of his Minuteman kit sitting right next to me right now. Um, and then uh, we worked together to put out a specific uh, medical kit for his bleeder pouches. Oh yeah, I think that's where I initially heard about you is is with him making a video about that. Yeah, and now you yeah. do um you do this through a, is it your company that you run? Yeah, yeah, I run a, a company by the name of Stuck Pig Medical. Um, website for it's just stuckpigmedical.com. Um, I do uh, gear sales, so I'm a distributor for North American, a licensed distributor for North American Rescue. Uh, I can pretty much order just about anything they have. I have my own custom kits that I've put together, uh, an IFAC, a bleeder kit, and then uh, like my take on a, a combat lifesaver, or I call it a, a partisan lifesaver bag. Um, but I can also do uh, other custom kits. So if somebody wants like a specific niche thing filled, they can they can hit me up for that. But I also, uh, on top of that, I also do training courses as well. Oh, yeah, man. <clears throat> well, I know I have one of your kits, and I like it a lot. I keep it in a, I want to say it's a Spiritus fanny pack. I think they're the ones that yeah. was in the cool camo. And I love oh, yeah. it. Yeah, it was, uh, that was when I'd been asked, uh, I'd been asked to put together a kit ever since I started teaching. And I decided to sit down and kind of do like my idea on the basics at a, a my attempt at a, a reasonable price for a, something that just kind of hits all the, the points that you need to for a decent IFAC. Now, yeah, and it does. It has all the uh, the main go-to essentials. I mean, we don't have to get into all the the details. I'll I'll link your website in the description. So, all y'all that are curious, please go check him out, and he's on Instagram as well. Um, so, great, great quality stuff. I can speak firsthand. Um, so, tell us a little bit about your background right you are 
the medical guru sort of in my in my sphere here. So what's uh what what makes MechMedic the go-to guy? Um well, uh, I kind of grew up doing uh scouting and stuff like that and was kind of always interested in the uh the medical side of things. Um joined the military and uh, of course I joined the Marine Corps and I went aviation. So I did absolutely nothing medical for about five years of my life. I uh, fixed C-130s. It was a, a blast. It was a great time. Uh, I learned a lot, met a lot of really cool people, went to a lot of really cool places. And then as I was getting out, uh, we decided to stay in North Carolina. I decided to join the National Guard for a career change. And one of the main MOSs I was looking at was 68 Whiskey, which is the MOS that I have now. Um, and uh, the only slot they had open was for a infantry battalion. <laughs> and that's, that's a bit of a change, a bit of a change. But that's that's where I've been now for going on, coming here soon to end my time at, at six years with the guard as a uh, as an infantry medic. And I've been I've been with infantry companies. I've been with the scout platoon mortars. I've spent a little bit of time, not much, but a little bit of time with the snipers. Uh, I've spent time with the the tank unit that we have. And then, of course, time in the uh, the aid station and in evac. So I feel like I've gotten a pretty decent, well-rounded uh, idea on medicine as far as like it applies to a combined arms concept. And then a lot of reading and stuff that I've done on my own and a lot of research and different stuff I've looked into as to how the stuff that I learned from GWAT and how that applies to, say, like a a partisan setting um, or more of like an austere off grid setting. And I've really tried to apply a lot of that with that idea in mind and, you know, not having a golden hour and not having a, a dedicated battalion aid station to take your wounded to. And that's, that's sort of what makes up like my thought process for how I teach classes and the kits that I put together. Um, and just kind of the, the general thought process that I have for going about the medical side. Now, what would you say the biggest disconnect for other medical professionals or let's say like a civilian paramedic or just another like a, a corpsman or something, somebody in the medical field that's not into the partisan sort of aspect of it? Um, what are they lacking or what are they, you know, not considering that you might be considering? Obviously, you said like the lack of the golden hour and austere yeah. stuff is there anything else that comes to mind that's just kind of like uh one thing i've noticed with a lot of civilian providers is they hyper fixate on cpr and heart issues um a lot of so like one of the big differences you'll see between like civilian uh medical response and a military medical response is the they have one entirely different population subsets they're dealing with and they're also dealing with entirely different uh injuries or medical issues that they're going to have to deal with so a lot of your civilian EMS focuses on like their trauma is going to be more focused around like car crashes, but they're primarily dealing with like medical responses. So like grandpa misses di like his dialysis appointment or, you know, grandpa's having a heart attack or something more along those. Somebody's having a stroke, something more along those lines, because that's what they have a higher likelihood of seeing. Um, versus in like a, a military trauma setting, a lot of our stuff is around explosions, gunshots, IEDs, artillery, stuff like that. And we really don't have to deal with that focus on elderly and people that have a lot more pre-existing conditions. So, Lifting assistance not, calls. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, not saying that that stuff's not important because it absolutely is. Um, that stuff is is really vital and is going to play a huge role. But when it comes to like trying with like, hey, we're going out in the woods for four days to do a reconnaissance patrol of our AO. I really don't think a rebreather mask for provi providing, you know, proper effective CPR probably shouldn't be one of like the things you're placing over more gauze or more tourniquets. But that's just because like, that's what they've been taught to focus and prioritize on. They feel like they need to hyper fixate on like CPR and those things when like in, even in normal day to day, it's like a 7% success rate for pre-hospital CPR. Yeah. And that's not even like them like continuing to make it. That's just them getting ROSC at the hospital. That's not them. And that's not including like them potentially being brain dead or any of the other issues that can happen with that. It's just you getting like them coming back. That doesn't include all those other issues. And then when you start talking about CPR and trauma, it drops to like 0.7 to 0.5% success rate because you have to deal with so much like, airway obstructions or just completely like them not having an airway anymore and you know the the massive amounts of blood loss that we have to deal with in combat trauma it really kind of makes a hamper on cpr being like an effective thing and so like for like grit up stuff yeah absolutely you should know cpr you should know how to like perform compressions and provide rescue breaths like that should be something you should learn how to do but i don't think you should prioritize because i had somebody tell me this that you should prioritize purchasing an aed over buying nods negative i i completely like 100 percent disagree because the chance of that actually like if you want to go ahead and buy an aed sure but i'm not going to tell someone that like no you shouldn't buy nods you should buy an aed for the slim slim chance that you're going to need an aed but when you need nods you you need nods There's maybe no if you're not tactical and you're 60 years old and your wife or significant other is on like an not even an LVAT, you know what I'm saying? Like they yeah. are a high propensity for that to happen. Or if, yeah. So Johnny on, won't I'm, stop texting I'm, me. I'm trying to turn on my, <laughs> do not disturb and Johnny's over here texting me. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> he's great at that. Um, I, uh, I really like bringing up like one thing that everyone always seems to focus on is everyone imagines themselves as like this big fancy gunfighter when all this shit like pops off and when like you need to like go out with your boys in the woods and do these security patrols like that's not like there's a there's a concept that people need to understand and study called the tooth to tail concept and the army like used to be I don't know how big they are still um but it used to be something big that they talked about, especially at like higher echelon, like command level stuff, because it's really kind of gets into like the logistics side of things that like only 10 percent of the entire U.S. military is combat arms. Yeah, it's a that's, little that's, bit that's, that's a, lower that's a, than most people would think. Yeah, it's 10 percent. And everyone thinks that all of the military is nothing but door kickers. And it's really not the case. And it's like actual like real combat arms, not MOSs that like to consider themselves combat arms mm -hmm. um, like and that doesn't mean that that 90% is irrelevant. That 90% is very, very vital and necessary. Like training staff and finance and admin and all these other things, you know, cooks and, and truck drivers and petroleum specialists and your, everyone that has anything to do with aircraft. Those are vitally needed because as we're learning with this, um, you know, this, this fighting that's going on in Eastern Europe, that logistics play a huge fucking role. Um, I don't know. You take any one here, small but... kind of, 
rando job that people overlook or don't like, like, like you mm-hmm. said, like the petroleum specialist, like you're one of those dudes out there in the, you know, uh, inflatable gas tanks and you just sit there and pump JP eight for guys all day. Like you take them out of the mix things. Stop oh yeah. Rolling. Yeah. It's, it's, especially when you start looking at things like mechanized units. Oh, even more so. It's it's huge because like a, a Brad or not a Bradley and Abrams burns the same amount of fuel at full speed that it does at idle because it's a turbine engine. It's a it's a helicopter motor. Well, so we dude, it's funny you even go down there. I was listening. I know I'm we're going to go on a little sidebar here, but I'm taking us there. Uh, I was listening to Doc Larson, Christopher Larson. You know who he is? Um, yes. Yes. Yeah. If y'all aren't listening or y'all aren't familiar, he does uh, one shepherd training. He's on there with Brent. Is it 0311? 03? 0331. 0331. I'm not a Marine. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, but he was talking about <clears throat> how these mech units roll. And it's like, it, it was a great eye opener for me as somebody who was never in a mech unit. If you see one of these, you know, Bradleys out there or a couple of them, there's probably a couple more and two Bra- uh, Abrams main battle tanks with them. And like to put that because we just the way we roll as America, as our our units and the the army are in the United States Army is if you don't know doctrine like that or just even the understanding of how much fuel has to be brought to the front lines for that group to operate, much less a whole battalion of them. And that's how we flex against other nation states. And then you look at it from a partisan standpoint, like you have to know these logistical lines. Um, oh yeah, and it's such a huge undertaking when you really get down to the brass facts of it, and then, then it starts to seem like an overwhelming task. But then, y- you got to get back down to the basics, like this. Like you have to understand combat yeah. medicine. You have to understand the logistics behind it, because you can't just think one man winning the war. Because you're not. It has to be yeah. a logistical huge train, and you have to think huge here. Think big. So I like what you're uh, how you point that out just straight off the bat with the logistical stuff. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's a it's it's a huge thing because like when you start talking about like treating casualties in a combat setting, um, it it requires a a massive amount of of underground and support. And one thing I always pushed military side, whether I was training junior medics or even CLS, was that. You know, we don't even at my level, my level of training that I have, we don't save lives. We we stabilize casualties so that they don't die while they're in route to a higher level of care. And you have to have that higher level of care. You have to have like I always say, like at the very least, like a nurse practitioner or a PA with surgical experience. That's a great uh, point to, to treat these these injuries because like these interventions that we throw on, whether it be a tourniquet or a chest seal, and guys like to nerd out about the the decompression needle, yeah. even something as 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 serious as that, like the the amount of follow on care and surgical support that that requires that because those things don't fix those issues. Like a tourniquet doesn't fix a damaged blood vessel that's leaking blood. Like that requires surgery, pretty invasive surgery, and that's a lot of like. That's a lot of gauze. Like, how much gauze do you actually not quick clot? Like, actual like gauze do you have on hand to support all of this stuff? And all these dudes talking about how they're going to go run out in the woods and they're just you know running heavy and they're just going to you know shoot up all of these people. Like, you have no idea the reality of what this is actually going to be like. My wife it's, it's, shed some some huge 
knowledge or drop some huge knowledge bombs on me. She's a nurse practitioner and she has ER experience. And she was telling me about like, if you just do the, the decompression needle, they needed a chest tube. And I'm like thinking what all is involved you know, like at that next higher level of, oh, that's what they treat them a, now, a, right? A I'm not saying an tube, austere... a chest tube with a vacuum pump, not just a chest tube, a chest tube with a vacuum pump because you have to reinflate that lung. Yeah. So it's like, what are we even really going to do here? Like, what are these people j- that just have, they're not thinking long term or logistically. And we got millions of them out there just, and they just have a needle in their eye fact and yeah. they just say, oh man, this, this chest is not, you know, rising equally. I'm going to hit them with a chest dart. Then what? Then they're going to die still. Or the tourniquet's going to turn them, you know, they're going to lose a leg and then they're going to get septic and they're going to die of gangrene stuff. Like, I mean, that's probably sounded so stupid what I just said because I'm not the medic here, but you know what I mean. No, it's, 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 a, it's a really extremely important point to make is that just, just planning to, like, to, to minimally treat these things with the stuff that we carry in an IFAC is not the right answer. There's, there's more that goes on to that and there, there's follow on stuff that has to happen. Now, I'm not saying you have to have like a, a, a level one trauma center, you know, worth of shit packed in your garage, but you probably should have like, again, I talk about like, you know, I, like I said earlier, like you need some gauze on hand and like a, a pretty, like you think you might have enough gauze. Like people think that they have enough, like the saying is like, if you think you have enough, rifle magazines you don't you need more like if you think you have enough cause double the amount that you have on hand. like you need like garage container tubs that you put toys in full of it. yes like multiples of those and like, <laughs> like one like of them of just, garbage pail one of them of like just curlex and then like one yeah. of them of like four by fours and two by twos like you're gonna run through so much fucking gauze you're not like if you have not treated an injured person like especially like follow on like long-term care if you've never done and that's kind of like the problem that we have in america is that we've outsourced so much stuff out to other people that like it used to be that like nursing care was a really common thing that was done at home and we've we've lost those abilities and those skill sets and so people don't know like we've outsourced so much about death that people don't really know what goes into everything around like healing and even death itself. Like you look like you go to the grocery store, you can find it. And when you buy meat, there's that little thing of gauze, not to collect blood because all of the blood's been drained out, but to collect up the myoglobin and the proteins that leak out that people assume is blood because you icky, I can't see blood. I can't touch blood. <laughs> exactly. They've never seen a dead but, body. Before. Yeah. But you want to, you know, stock up on, you know, 35 fucking goals like that's going to make a difference if you don't know all of the follow-on stuff like there's a whole bunch more like everyone always talks about like oh march this march that yeah march is really important you need to understand that algorithm and how to treat but there's so much more that goes into it than that like just just peek into the prolonged casualty care guidelines what used to be the prolonged field care guidelines and like the things that are required of a, a medic treating someone for you know 24 to 72 hours unassisted just just peek in that and you're going to be mind blown at the amount of stuff that has to go on um that's why i made it might have been the first podcast that macgyver mindset because this is not we can't just say hey i have infantry training or i'm just a vet right or i used to be a cop or whatever and i'm gonna go win i'm gonna go take the country back when the civil war or when the world war three happens or red dawn happens, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. scenario people envision in their mind. 
um, not only is that not going to happen, you have to train yourself to a level. I, I honestly think you have to train yourself higher than the average professional soldier in multiple facets for us to even have a chance because you have to be such a force multiplier because there's so fewer of us in the logistical supply chain is so less uh, prepared now that we're so behind the curve. You have to be thinking on multiple levels um, in advance of any of these disasters that we could potentially face uh, that it's not, you know, if you're listening to this, understand what I'm getting at and then help prepare those around you. Like, like I'm not trying to say blow their mind, but just let them understand how much more involved it is than them saying, I have a chess rig and a rifle and I, you know, I created a telegram account. Like (laughs) that's not going to help. It's, it's definitely like, it's, it's a starting point um, getting into that. But like, once you start looking at like the logistics of um, like, arming people and like <laughs> supplying ammo it things start getting really crazy like when i, I took the the <laughs> uh, so i do a lot of stuff with uh brush breeder training uh, nc scout uh, i took his scout course in february and with so only nice. running with only running like 20 rounds of blanks at a time for 25 students we burned through over a thousand rounds of blanks in a day and a half With yeah. each person only taking, you know, 20 rounds of blanks at a time. We did like three or four iterations of, of raids. And then you talk about people, you know, going cyclic. Yeah. You, like, <laughs> like you want to, you want to, you know, it, it's, it's so much more than people think. It's so, it's so intensive. And then what about uh, and tomorrow? That's just the, and then what about a yeah, year from now? And then yeah. what about five years from now? Yeah. Um, it, it, it gets to be some like logistics is a, is a huge, such a huge vital thing. That's not talked about anywhere near enough. Um, and in medicine it's, it's massive and it's not just the things it's, it's the people with the training and, and that level of knowledge. Um, even if you, so like, if you can't find a, uh, like a human doctor, like you go to the old like crime show like thing where, Oh, we found the veterinarian that can go. Well, they still know quite a bit of stuff and they're technically doctors too. You Um, give our listeners a lot of credit. I saw that on trailer park boys too. (laughs) Uh, Well, I was thinking more like sons of anarchy or something like that. Like, yeah, that's better. Yeah. We'll we'll edit Um, out that. I said that. I'll leave it. We'll bleep it out. (laughs) Um, and, uh, like a, a veterinarian has a, a, a wide level of knowledge, um, especially when you start looking at like talking about like the homesteading thing and keeping animals for protein, because the number one way to keep protein available for long term is to keep it on the hoof. Right. Uh, that's the best way to store protein long term. Um, and when you start getting into like animal husbandry and, and, and maintaining animals, like you talk to anybody that runs a, a large scale or even a small scale like cattle operation their vet bills are insane they're astounding the amount of stuff even looking at like goats the amount of stuff that they have to put into and deal with the the medications that they have to push the if they hurt themselves you know do you, do you just kill that goat right there because you know it broke its leg no that's a, a a crappy hollywood trope to oh the horse broke its leg let's shoot it that's something that people that never grew up around animals think is a thing. 
<laughs> and and having like that level of knowledge is also like equally important. Um, and so that's like a good place. Like if you can't find like someone that's like that level of medically trained and talk to them, cause there's, you know, we, we make the joke that like doctors are all, you know, liberals and idiots. I can tell you that they're not. Cause I've had quite a few of them in class. I've had nurse practitioners. I've had PAs. I've had doctors in class, like full MDs. There's, there's quite a few of them that are not on the left side of the scale. There are quite a few of them that are pretty hardcore on the right. Um, they're just a little bit more quiet about it. Yeah, their jobs are on the line all the time yes. right now. I know one personally, and I think he got fired for saying something about this whole past pandemic bullshit, right? He said yeah. one thing, somebody wrote it down, he got fired. I'm, I'm not surprised. It's yeah. uh, it's a cluster. But that goes to, back to what you're saying. They're out there, right? So yeah. it, there's just not a whole lot of them. There's not as many, but there's, there's still um, quite a few of them out there um that, that can get to be a whole uh dive as to why people become doctors nowadays because there's there's less and less of them that are becoming doctors because they want to help people a lot of them are doing it because either they have some false ideas about what it means to be a doctor or they're doing it to make their parents happy or because it makes a lot of money and any one of those things those three things should not be part of the equation when it comes to going into healthcare. Um, and that's that's where we've seen a lot of the issues that we've seen with, you know, in the last two, three years with and I would argue that those things have been happening beforehand. Just most people don't spend time in hospitals, so they don't know that they happen. Um, these things have been going on for a while. It was just that this last two years brought a lot of it up to the surface for a lot of people to realize how, you know, pardon my language, but how fucked the, the healthcare system in the U.S. really is. Yeah, it definitely it opened my eyes a whole lot for sure. So, okay. So let's take that. Let's take that into consideration, right? So there's less, there's less doctors out there that are in the same similar line of thinking that we are. Then in that, um, you know, if worse comes to worse, that's, that number is probably going to even be lower, right? Because of whatever reason, casualties or, or people fleeing or whatever. Um, so what could we do as for, for this, you know, discussion partisans, if we have casualties or, you know, we are preparing to bring potentially austere type casualties in, or or we're in that austere environment, or, you know, let's say we don't have access to anything other than we, we know there's a doctor up the street and he's, you know, he's cool. We've talked to him before. What can we do differently or prep? patient wise or is there anything that stands out to you um that could help their survivability with lack of logistics or minimal you know technology yeah um so the biggest thing and this is um this is not my idea this is something that is said if you listen to any of the uh, prolonged field care podcasts uh anytime they have somebody on to talk about stuff one of the first things they say is like if you're trying to learn about prolonged field care and you haven't mastered TC3 and the March algorithm, stop because all you're going to be doing is chasing your tail. So I would say that like at the lower level, like master TC3, tactical combat casualty care and March, 
master that to the best of your ability with like the level of stuff that you have available to you like i'm not telling people to go like try to study and think that they're going to become like a combat medic because it's 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 not realistic without like the the support and the logistics that like the military brings and i would absolutely not tell someone to go join to learn those skills now at this point in time um but me neither <laughs> there 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 are other like other things you can do and like the um my training like there are plenty of other instructors and, and companies out there that do training um and 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 do more than just watch youtube videos on how to do this stuff um, because this is so technical and you can get so much wrong by a simple misunderstanding of what somebody is saying on a youtube video go take professional instruction because it's not about like the information itself that they're teaching when you take a course like that it's you're learning from like their mistakes as well. And like, you also have them directly there to immediately get that face to face. Like, Hey, you said this, how does that, you know, like, are you talking like this or like that? Um, Cause I get those questions a lot, like a lot of clarifying questions in class um, because it, it's a lot of information to try to wrap your head around in two or three days. Well, like if you're, um, if you're somebody listening to this and you don't have, let's say you have a very limited or no medical experience and you want to go take a class like, like Meg medic just said, um, you, I would say you really, really, really need the professional instruction for the hands-on portion. Like you're not going to understand by watching a video or doing this, the simple CPR class, how to do CPR correctly. And I'm not saying that for, you know, we're not worried about CPR here, but like if you just do what you see on TV or you see in the, the, you know, the mandatory Red Cross training, that's not really how people do it in real life. They do it a lot harder and faster. And it's, it's kind of wild looking if you're, if you haven't seen it before, but that it's the same thing. Like if you're watching YouTube videos or you think we're just saying this to simp on like go like for us to make money. Like that's not what we're getting at. You have to go and have somebody critique you in person and you ask questions and, and literally you have to do hands-on training here to understand. I have to do the tourniquet this tight, or I have to do the chin this way for the airway to do this. Right. Or I have to, you know, I have to palpate it exactly like this. Otherwise, I can't feel what I'm supposed to. You can't learn that from YouTube as much as you can take from videos and podcasts, like go out and do hands on stuff. You can find it cheap. I'm sure if you search for it, you can find it cheap somewhere. Yeah. Um, a, a decent place is in a decent, a decent place to start is like, go find a, uh, a close enough to you. Stop the bleed course. They're, free they don't cost you anything um and they're about an hour to two hours long um my issue with the stop the bleed program was when the american surgical college took over they decreased the requirements for instructors um before it had to be either a um like a, a paramedic who was teaching you know emt courses and had like TECC, which is like the civilian version of TC3, or like a military person that had experience with TC3 could become an instructor. After the American Surgical College took over, um, 
they loosened it to where like anybody with a fucking pulse can become <laughs> a stop the bleed instructor. And I understand why they did that, but I don't think they should have done that because now like a physical therapist can go teach a stop the bleed class once they've taken one. But then like you get into like this dangerous loop of like physical therapists teaching like dental hygienists teaching like some other like random medical career field that isn't exactly like who you want teaching that but their idea is to get that stuff out for free so it's definitely like a place to start and it doesn't cost anything and it can get you like sort of headed in the right direction oh yeah and a lot of people they don't like blood and they don't realize it till they see it so like having the little fake blood spurter uh not dummies but you know the props that's yeah yeah um, <laughs> no, those are they're they're definitely pretty good. If you can find one taught by like, because uh, it's now a requirement for like over a certain, I think it's anything larger than a role two or a level two trauma center has to like every so often teach one of these courses to the general public. If you can get on there, um, you're learning from like one of the RN instructors that has spent time in the ER that understands like the the physiology behind why these things work. Um, and they were probably had some pretty good instruction themselves and they actually know how to teach themselves as well. Um, they are instructors. They're responsible for like the continuing education of everybody in the hospital. So if you can get onto one of those, that would absolutely be like really a, a much better than just taking like whatever rando stop the bleed class you can get to. Um, or you could just come to me and I can teach you all of this stuff with the right mindset, but People don't like hearing that stuff because they think you're a shill or something. So, well, it's a great time to bring it up, though. You do teach classes, right? So, all that can yeah. be found. That's on your website, though, right? Yes, it is. Um, yeah. And you can y'all even go take out. classes with him. I highly recommend it. Um, but yeah, like we're not. This isn't an advertisement for you, but definitely, I I would recommend they do that. I've listened in on some of the classes. You've been cool enough to let me kind of peek behind the curtain and uh i really respect what you got going on so yeah uh speaking of that i also do uh i'll do twice a month uh zoom classes i have a patreon just search stuck pig medical um on patreon and you can find me there it's 15 bucks a month and you get access to twice a month i'll do a, a live stream class for like one to two hours um on a whole variety of of subjects and we'll really kind of like dive deep into a, a lot of things. Um, something I wanted to do for, especially now with the increase of uh, fuel prices and with all of the, uh, just the, the random inflation or not so random inflation going on. Uh, just another way for people to get that information in. I think everyone's gotten kind of used to doing the virtual thing this past couple of years anyway. So it's just natural to go in that direction. And uh, it's it's not just another like bullshit PowerPoint class. I can I can promise you that uh, I put a little bit more effort into it than that. Oh, yeah. OK, so I got a few random questions about the whole partisan medic type concept here. Mm-hmm. Do you let's say we've um, there's been a lot of theory back and forth. And I think a good general consensus is the a squad size of around six split into two two teams right yeah um in that size do you recommend or do you see there being needing to be like a medic role in that or maybe in a larger role 
or a larger element. Um, what do you, what's your philosophy behind that for partisan medics or, you know, medical providers, if you will, even if you don't want to call them medics because they're lower level. I, I really, I really hate, I really hate to be this guy. Um, I really do, but it's really met TC dependent. <laughs> it, I, it, it's a cliche. I hate saying it, but it is sadly, there is so much that goes into it. Um, it, it really comes down to like, as much as we used to talk shit about it, like doing like even just a basic, like dumbed down operational risk management matrix on like, like what the threat level is for what you're doing and like what your plan is. Do you see yourself taking a bunch of casualties? Do you just like expect this op mission, whatever the hell you want to call it that you're sending out to be some sort of incident where there could be a, a higher likelihood of casualties, then maybe yes, you do want to send somebody that has a, a higher medical level out there um, as like a stopgap. Um, this is again, getting into like the logistics side, like you're also going to want, like maybe like you don't send like your highest medically trained person. That's not like, so obviously you don't go sending doctors out on like patrol. That's not the answer. Um, they have like more important things to do than going out. You on can't patrol. risk them. Yeah, um, they can train other people to learn things to go out on patrol. Or if we're doing like a like a proactive community thing, like the shit that we did in Iraq, where like you would go out on patrol with like four or five medics and they would like, hey, you look like that's infected. Come here. We're going to go do a simple surgery real quick. Or like they would go out with like a PA and like four or five medics with an infantry like platoon. And like you'd set up like a hasty clinic somewhere in a local village or in a town and like try to fix some of these issues from these people that hadn't had like working hospitals or running water in 10 years. Like if that's the case, because like for a partisan force, medicine is absolutely like a military concern. Um, and I know people like freak out when you say shit like this, but you need to be reading like lefty books, like shit, like um, uh, Mao on guerrilla warfare talks heavily on how important medical care is. Because, like, any partisan group pulls their legitimacy from their community. And without legitimacy from their local community, no one's going to support you. So you absolutely have to have, like, that local support from your local community. And a great way to do that is setting up little clinics and treating people. And do, even if it's minor stuff, like... It's a great point. It, even something as simple as, like, an ingrown toenail is a massive amount of relief for someone that can't go to a hospital and get it taken care of because there are no hospitals. And then we by um, default have a medical facility to, to take wounded to yes, a hard yes. point. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, it like, but for the most part, like if you're going out doing security patrols, I don't think you necessarily need like your most senior or second senior medic to go out there. Um, if you suspect that like the threat level is going to be higher, maybe you send like your second highest trained person out there and you leave like your highest trained person back with your QRF, with your quick response force in case something goes wrong. That way you have that person there because you're expecting there to be a higher level of casualties anyway. That person can start like or continue that triage that's being started by that person that's on the ground. Okay, uh, so I want to go down this road a little bit more if you don't mind. So let's say just I'm just coming up with all this off the top of my head. Let's say you have like 15 or 20 guys, right? You got a decent amount of people and 
what's I'm just trying to think what's the potentially most dangerous type mission that a partisan force would do like a raid yeah or, probably or an amp maybe not an ambush but like a raid to get supplies yeah or something a, like a that supply raid on a on an opposing force yeah um, a defend a defended building or a defended you know outpost so in that case you have 15 or 20 guys you know I don't know if you have if that helps um if you want to pick a number, but like, are you like logistically and everything, are you taking the amount of guys into consideration? Are you taking, when you choose your materials that you're bringing along and your equipment, are you, are you considering more taking multiple medics, um, having points along the way? Like what are some key considerations if you maybe have a couple of medics or do you bring multiple, do you, do you dole out uh, supplies among the the grunts, if you will? Like, point me in the right direction here, just for somebody yeah. Yeah. who has uh, no fucking idea what we're talking about. So, like, generally, each person is going to have at minimum their IFAC, their individual first aid kit, their trauma kit, blowout kit, whatever the hell you want to call it, their list of things, um, tourniquet, you know, compressed gauze. Uh, pressure dressing, chest seal, MPA, um, those type things on them. And that's for them to be treated like by someone else using that stuff at a bare minimum. I always suggest like, if you have room in your assault pack, just throw an extra one in there. Cause you can toss it to somebody because who's to say that like the injuries that they received didn't also damage their IFAC. Exactly. Um, just in case, just always pack. It, it really doesn't take up that much room in an assault pack um, just to throw some extra shit in. Um, and then like the next step up from that would be like, so like say like we're planning a raid and we have like 25 dudes. Um, I'd be splitting, splitting it into like a 10 man assault force and like a, a 15 man um, support by fire element. I would have like my more senior more experienced medical person in the support by fire element and like maybe just like cls or partisan lifesaver whatever you want that next step up but not quite a medic i would have a couple of those in the assaulting element because those are going to be the ones that you expect to see like the most enemy interaction is now, in do you, do you say that to keep the 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 more senior guy safe yeah yeah absolutely you, you is that, that that's the that, point the main point yeah and yeah he's the higher so level that way care. like you don't you don't risk them like in the assault phase of the raid you don't risk them as one of the members of the assault element you keep them back with the support by fire in cover not moving just kind of in like a semi-static position for that raid and then once the like once they call loa and the support by fire moves through that point that's when like the medical team comes through and is like, Hey, what's going on? Like, what do you have? Like what casualties do we have that we need to treat? And then you move like from that point. As a quick sidebar, if you're listening to this and you're confused at some of the things we're talking about right now, this is so far above. If you're confused by this back up, go look at the Ranger handbook, then come back to this. Because this is, if you're were if you don't understand those concepts, um, you're not, you're at the, a different part of the learning pyramid here and you need to build more sturdy, wide foundations before you get to this part of it, because it's going to do, you no good. Like you mentioned earlier, you're going to be circling your tail, trying to figure out why you'd have one guy on one side 
if you don't understand the tactics of how you are doing the raid and assaulting and setting up where elements are on the battlefield. So, okay, so you have your more senior guy in the support by fire. Um, mm-hmm. And then is he, are, are you setting up um, like a mobile casualty collection point? Is it like a stationary place that you designate in advance? Like how does that? So generally, um, like, so as you go on patrol, generally, like in the planning stage of your patrol, you pre-plan out uh, rally points. And that's also where, like, you're doing your uh, radio checks with hire. Um, Like doing like your, um, like where you have like your combo windows, per se, like to do those radio reports and, and to do your, so that way, like if someone, like a patrol goes out and they miss two combo windows, QRF gets sent in after them, like those type things. Um, yeah. Especially when we don't have like satellite communications and ISR twenty four seven over our patrolling elements, like we have to kind of go back to those old school like Vietnam style alert tactics. Um, and so, like your tactic. last, yes, your <laughs> last rally point that you passed, like your most recent rally point that you've passed, that becomes your casualty collection point. Cool. So situational awareness. Yeah. Um. And uh, yeah, yeah, it goes back to you can't just be dumb Joe Schmo private. Like you have to be squared away to have a chance here. Yes. Okay. Um. Now, what are some things that you are expecting? So, like, let's say I'm I'm back in the support by fire, and we've got the we've got Doc with us, and we've got some of the the grunt you know, EMTs up assaulting and they get a couple mm-hmm. of casualties. Um, is that, you know, are we going rushing in? Are they pulling them out? Are we waiting until it's all said and done? Like, how are we going to treat them? Let's, if it's tying up those medics or those, those guys on the actual assaulting phase. It'd wait through the entire assaulting phase. Um, leave that to whoever's commanding the assaulting element to make that call like immediately on the ground. Like if he just sends a CLS over, if he just has like that dude's like buddy team member go over and treat him, or he just says, you know what, he's just going to have to self aid until we can get to him. Um, because like we obviously went out like for a reason and decided to do this raid for a reason. And we need to like not lose sight of that. Right. Um, and like, that's why it's really important to understand these basics. Um, for like especially for like that self-aid and that buddy aid level because that's going to be all you have all you have until we can get like that next higher level of medical training to you so it might take i mean what's doctrine like 12 15 minutes on the x for a uh for a raid something like I, that we always said like 15 minutes yeah. yeah so 15 minutes it's not a lot of time but at the same time when you're talking about like the amount of time it takes someone to bleed out that's a lot of fucking time yeah um, so like you need to be really squared away with self-aid and buddy aid and like, maybe you just leave that guy's buddy stay there and like, or you just make the call to just push through the ambush and we'll get to him when we get to him. Um, we're not just going to like leave people behind, um, for, for two main reasons. One is that again, and going back to like that legitimacy thing, like if we go out on patrol and like you get hit and I'm like, Oh, fuck it we don't have the stuff to take care of him. And I just leave you there. And I go back to Mrs. Krisky and I'm like, Hey, uh, sorry, but your husband got shot and, uh, we just left him sitting there. Like she's going to tell everybody that she can, you know, 
pull their ear to not do anything with our organization, with our group, with our force, because once you become a liability, we drop you like a a hot potato. If you look at like the way the VC handled casualties, um, talk to like Vietnam vets or like listen to some of their stories. They never found unless they were like initiating an ambush and wiped out the entire element. They never found bodies. That's good that you mentioned that they just find blood trails. I remember it was just blood trails that disappear into the jungle. It was such and like on on that aspect, like it's such a psychological mind fuck, especially for like an opposing force that's coming from another area into your like without getting into specifics, um, like an opposing force from outside your area coming in and an invading force. Um, it's such a psychological thing. To, to you know never find a dead body You're like i swear to god we that was a platoon plus that we knocked out and you just find blood trails that disappear and you can't prove it and then you're and you in doubt yep. what you're putting back to hire and it, yep. it, it's it's like you're like it, it's a ghost we're shooting at ghosts so in that is, do you have well i mean i know this answer but let's put it a different way do you see a lot of guys partisans civilian types with skidcos with you know preparing litters how are they addressing that are they just all going to firemen carry are they going to do some makeshift stuff in the field webbing right like what do you think it um skidcos are definitely like an important thing especially when you start talking about getting like double digit numbers worth of people um then you start talking about like setting up uh uh, an aid and litter team so for those of you that don't know skidco is a uh it's like a a a roll-up piece of plastic litter that you can drag with you can carry it like a normal litter but also like another cool thing is and depending on which like area you live in this might be important um it's hoistable so like yeah the big idea for it was like hoisting by helicopter but another thing where you see and you can go look up videos on youtube of this of them using skedcos in like civilian search and rescue and like high elevation stuff so if you have like really high cliff faces if you live anywhere near like any of the mountain ranges across the u.s and that's like an area you're going to be operating in predominantly, it might be a smart idea to get a couple of these because you might have to like lift people up clip faces and you can do that with a Skedco litter. Um, We've, I've had to use one uh, training to get people that have injured themselves on like antennas and yep. high rise towers, like inside yeah. the, the ladder rung system. So yep. we climb up behind them and then we'd have to rig up a pulley system to get their weight off of the safety and then put them on one of those. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's that, that high angle, the confined spaces stuff. Skedco's play a huge, huge role. Like in how much is a Skedco? Like, what? A couple hundred bucks probably. They're like $800. Oh uh, my God. New. They're $800. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I was able to, on my deployment, I was able to uh, squirrel one away. We replaced, uh, I think it was third ID that we replaced and they left like five connexes worth of medical shit behind. <laughs> And uh, Brigade Medical Supply Office did not want to, like, go through it all and put it on their books. So they just put out a mass email to all of the battalion's medic platoon sergeants and said, pitter-patter, get at her. And we (laughs) rat-fucked. We took a two-door soft-top, like, high-back Humvee and filled that thing to the brim. And, like, the soft sides were, like, bulging out. And then every medic walked out with a duffel bag full of shit. And I had a duffel bag plus a brand-new Skedco. 
I know it's like I'm not a medic, right? I was an EMT, but isn't it a great feeling when you get free was, medical supplies like that? You're just like, Hell. it's amazing. It's so <laughs> it's so great, especially like once you actually start looking at like having to pay for all that stuff yourself. It gets expensive. Uh, a a good like middle of the road, and it's not hoistable, but it is draggable. Um, option is the Foxtrot litter by uh, Tactical Med Solutions, the guys that make the soft tees. Um, that's a litter that they put out with. It's a lot. It's not as like wide as a Skedco, so it doesn't have the hoist capability. Um, but you can drag it, which is a the huge benefit for the Skedco. Probably not something most guys are going to be worried about. It's just going to not necessarily drag yeah. them and sliding over brush and shit like yeah. This. And the fox trot litter, I, I don't have any like hard firsthand evidence on like how durable it is, but they're like one hundred and thirty dollars compared to 800 yeah and i also i did a post about it on my instagram um and i'll probably end up doing like a little more in depth with a uh a surplus usmc philby assault pack i found a way to rig one up to quick detach to the buckles on the bottom and you can probably do the same thing with an alice pack because you have longer straps but you can strap it to where you would normally strap like a a sleeping pad well i tell uh, you one it, thing it takes we up a lot do. less space this might actually be really good idea i think okay. i know what you're about to say because i had uh, a buddy the of mine who was in the the, the waist strap. no so what they would do because he was with the uh the recon platoon um for his uh for his battalion and they would take the uh the soft foldable litters the polish ones like the uh like that you can get it for like 25 dollars they're just all nylon with handles on them mm-hmm and they would spray one side of it with uh, the Flex Seal spray paint. Yeah. Um, and then they would roll up their puss pad in that. So that way they had a, a shooting mat. And they, like not every guy would take it out. They would only have like two or three because only two or three guys would be sleeping. When they were doing these um, hunter-killer teams, they would have like six-man teams go out. Yeah. Of, like two snipers and then uh, two saw gunners and two A-gunners would go out. And set up like this hide site with snipers and 240s. Yeah, we did that with, we'd take a medic, the RTO, the platoon sergeant, a 240 gunner, and uh, a designated marksman. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, like, only two guys would take that out. But so you have um, two pads for, you know, like shooting pads, especially when you're talking about, like, for them, they were in uh, north of Baghdad. Um, they were in Sodder City, so like all the 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 building tops that you're on and shit, like it it keeps you from like basically getting second degree burns from laying on those hot ass rooftops. Um, then you also have like some sort of extrication device with that polis litter, and then you also have sleeping pads for the guys that are going to be taking turns on shift sleeping. Yeah, it's a good idea. That's the one thing a lot of people don't realize is like you can't have everyone sleeping, so you don't need all. The... Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds kind of gross, and people don't like to hear that that haven't been in and then that close with their buddies. But like, yeah. you don't need that many sleep systems. No, it's it's one thing if you're going out, like if you're just training like small unit tactics, tactics and stuff. Like, yeah, everyone just bring your sleep system, and like we'll. When it comes down to it, like we're gonna start having time to work that stuff into the rotation for training. But like at the beginning, don't worry about like two guys taking out sleeping bags. Right. Um, that's not like a hundred percent feasible, just because that's gonna turn a lot of dudes off that aren't used to it. 
That's funny though. You you brought up that we called um we called those groups small small kill teams SKTs. Yeah, that's what it was. Small kill teams. I'm, I apologize. I think I said something no, else, but they're small kill teams. There's a bunch of different names for it. I think that's what yeah. So um okay, so I got another few random questions for you. So how many? Let's say I'm not the medic. I'm just the grunt, right? Partisan grunt. What is the ideal amount of tourniquets I should carry? And should they all be, you know, in diff- should I have one on each limb, right? Should I have them all in my IFAC? Should I have them all in my cargo pocket? You know, what's, what do you think the best practice or a general good practice is for the average rifleman? Um, I know in GWAT, they used to get super heavy on dudes carrying out four. Um, and I mean, like, I'm not going to tell someone to not carry more tourniquets, but at a minimum, I would say like two. Um, that's really all I carry when I go out is about two tourniquets. If it's, if it's anything worse than that, it, it's, it's a bad day. Um, and as of right now, like we can still call nine one one and get semi fast responses, um, to get people out there to where we're at. Um, but, and even if it was like actual go time, I'm probably only going to like on immediate use, I'm probably only going to have two tourniquets on like my kit i'm right there with you i only have two maybe unless maybe, i have a med bag yeah maybe one in my in my uh in my ifac for like me to get used on me i'll have like a couple extras in my pack like with extra like ifacs because I'll, I'll, i'm gonna pack one i always pack an extra one um because when you need a tourniquet you need a tourniquet but i don't, I don't really understood the idea of like you need to have a, a tourniquet in each shoulder pocket and each ankle pocket but what happens if you step on the fucking ied with your foot there goes the tourniquet for that appendage yeah i mean i i sort of i mean i get it in a way because they're like you will always have it on another appendage to reach i guess but it's like yeah if you base everything on that then why are you even like? Well, that's, that's the same thought process that got us the DAPS system. That's that's the thought process that got us the DAPS. Like, oh, <laughs> that's that's that thought process. Um, it that's that's kind of like a, a big army thing for those of you that don't know that never really spent any time in. Um, not that that's a bad thing at all. I would never say that. Um, it they got really really risk averse and really like super hyper fixated on safety to the point where like we lost violence of action because we were so focused on safety yeah and so like guys getting hurt yep wearing like all of this body armor and plates and deltoid armor and which is what the 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 dap system is it's it's like these deltoid like soft armor pads you wear on your shoulders and then like the gunner's harnesses that ended up like killing people so and all these other different things the fucking gunner's harness okay so (laughs) we were issued all the 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 extra shoulder pads and everything we Mm -hmm. never wore them but they fucking mandated us to wear those gunner harnesses and i was in a weapon squad so i was a 240 gunner for a majority of the missions we were on and Dude, that thing scared the shit out of me because we were hearing guys get blown up. And the, the only guys that were surviving initially were the gunners because they were getting blown out. And then we hear they're they're not able to get out because they're plugged into these things like buckles and they're getting the vehicles rolled over on them. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's, that's where you see like the strap cutters starting to come to be a thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I tend to stay away from strap cutters because the only thing strap cutters are meant to be used for is cutting straps off. I would much rather somebody have a set of trauma shears than a strap cutter. Um, Cause there's actually been incidents in training where somebody using a strap cutter put like a seven to eight inch gash in somebody's thigh in a training incident from using a strap cutter. Um, it, it, trauma shears are they're 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 a known quantity. You just just stick with trauma shears. I, I don't understand the hyperfixation on strap cutters. I used a strap cutter um, as a firefighter, but I only did it. I I didn't use it every time. I only used it in very specific circumstances um yeah. because we had the the trauma shears and all the bags right and i even you know once you get into it you have your own bag right with your own shears yep. and everything but what i liked is at um i would wear my bunker gear on top of my regular pants so a lot of times when we we're uh, running car accidents or it was a random call and i i didn't have a bag on me i wasn't always gonna have shears on me but i did always have that that seatbelt cutter so i could still cut jeans or a belt if i needed to depending on what i'm wearing um just because it's always there you know what i'm saying like it's just convenience but i would never choose that over the shears for sure yeah you're because you are gonna you could cut somebody and it's you're gonna have to yank and then you're gonna pop them you know in the chin accidentally or something stupid yep okay so do you think so I agree with you with the two tourniquets. Um, I'm a, I'm the mindset. I keep one in the IFAC and I keep one somewhere else, maybe yep. in a pocket. Uh, um, yeah, I'll, I'll throw one on a on a on a, tur- a dedicated tourniquet pouch on on a chest rig. Yeah. yeah. Um. So then IFAC contents. What do you? Let's say. I mean, if you're an EMT or higher, you probably already have your own thoughts on on contents of an IFAC. But let's say you're just yeah. the regular guy, no T triple C, nothing. Like what what should they have? What should they avoid? You know, yeah. uh, any tips or tricks there? Yeah. So with there's there's a lot of especially when you start getting into like some of the the companies that are a little bit more scrupulous they're not really like as concerned with selling you a good product they're just trying to sell you a product um i can get kind of big and like they can have a lot of shit in them and they don't need to ifax are it says first aid but that's an old term from the beginning of gwat um not that we found something to replace it but like that's where that term like originated from and and even before gwat and it doesn't really fit like that terminology doesn't fit well into like tc3 but it's what we have so it's what we're using um and like even military side we still call them ifacs um but the things that we're packing into them are life-saving interventions directly to deal with stuff under the march algorithm so massive hemorrhage airway respiration circulation and hypothermia and hypothermia is kind of a unique case where you really can't fit anything that's worth a shit to treat hypothermia in an IFAC. So I only keep hypothermia prevention stuff with my litters um, or in an assault pack because it's really easy to because like the, everyone's like, well, what about those Mylar blankets? Well, those Mylar blankets are not worth a shit because as soon as They'll you rip open it, they rip. The ones I really like are the uh, Arcturus uh, GI casualty blankets. Um, they're basically like a great shit, don't they? What's that? 
Arctur, Ar, is it Arcturus? That's how you pronounce it, right? Yeah, not. I'm not talking about Arcteryx, not the like no, 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 with an S. jacket company. Yeah, the Arcturus. Um, Dude, like they make great stuff. Awesome stuff. It's like a recreation of the old school, or not so old school. I guess it's old school now. Um, GI casualty blanket, and it's like basically like a tarp with a, a mylar shell in it. Yeah. Um, and I always keep one of those in all of my assault packs and all of like my rucks and shit because they're multi-purpose. You can the use it for a casualty blanket. Yes. Um, you can use it as a casualty blanket. You can use it to buff up your ranger roll when it gets really chilly out. Um, and then you can also use it now that like drones and thermal are becoming a thing as thermal mitigation. If you actually look through the Marine Corps, uh, they have a manual on thermal mitigation and like UAV mitigation. It talks about using a casualty blanket um, to help defeat thermal because thermal like everyone like makes it out to be like because again, everyone's experience thermal is like video games and shit. Is something that like can see through walls and like it's like you know predator where it can see your footsteps on the ground thermal's really not like it's got some like it's handy it's definitely better than the naked eye but it's not like this end-all be-all like perfect thing um a tree and, like, yes and with a little bit of like gaming with your position for like a final firing site or like uh, an lpop with some creativity and a casualty blanket, you can hide yourself entirely from thermal and any sort of opposing ISR. MacGyver but, would know how to yes. hide himself. Yes. From that MacGyver, that MacGyver mindset. So I include them with all of them just because they're so handy. If I need a tarp to keep something from getting rained on, I have a tarp. It's got grommets on each corner. Um, they're super durable. They'll last for years of repeated use. Um, I really like using those and I keep those with all of all of my stuff, but those cheaper Mylar blankets, they don't work. Um, so massive hemorrhage, that's generally going to be treated with tourniquets. I don't really like keeping them in the IFAC, but like on or near it. Um, I like keeping them um, one at least outside for easy access for myself or somebody else to use on me. And that's another thing. Your IFAC is meant for someone else to use on you. It's not for you to use to treat somebody else. Um, so two tourniquets one at least one easily accessible um either in like a, a designated pocket or uh in a in a very obvious identifiable pouch um if you're running cats which is what i would recommend they're the standard for a reason um you can get a surplus flashbang pouch and those will actually fit a cat in it um yeah they fit you don't well. have to and you don't have to pay for like some of the expensive money for the specific tourniquet pouches um, and then the other thing that massive hemorrhage is going to cover is wound packing for the junctions. So compressed gauze and some sort of pressure bandage. Um, I'm going to get flack for saying this. I already know I get flack every fucking time I say this. I am, I not, recommending, I am not recommending people go out and buy quick clot. Um, but Mac, it's so much more effective. I can tell you from firsthand experience, quick clot will not save you from shitty packing technique. It won't. Um, you have to pack correctly with either one. It's not some magic talisman to save the day. Um, also, quick clot can only do one thing, pack wounds. Compressed gauze, which is basically like vacuum-sealed Curlex, can do a million and one things. It's the most MacGyver fucking thing ever. Uh, I would rather someone have... And the other the other big thing is, is price. So a thing of quick clot is like $45, $50 for one roll, plus shipping. You can get compressed gauze for two dollars and like fifty cents a roll, and that's vacuum sealed. 
you can get the non-vacuum sealed stuff for even cheaper, especially when you start buying in bulk. Um, and so I would rather someone have $40 of compressed gauze than one thing of quick clot. Because once you use that quick clot, it's done. You can't repack with it if you mess something up. You have to pull it out and get something brand new to start with. Yeah. So, like, it, if I'm not going to tell someone to not buy quick clot because it does work. It does work better than regular gauze, but you have to know what you're doing. And it is expensive. So, I would rather someone start out with plain gauze and then go after they've gotten, like, a, like a surplus of gauze. Then go ahead and start buying quick clot because I have quick clot. Most of mine was acquired by very sticky fingers inside of the TMC, but that's neither here nor there. Like no. I, I'm not telling people to go pay for it because that's kind of like elitist and like gatekeeping, and we're not about that shit. No. Um. So yeah. like definitely just like plain gauze. Um. It, it keeps the cost down. Medical shit gets expensive enough as it is. Um. It if you want to go for it, but I'm not telling you that you have to have it. Um, so the next thing, airway, um, that's where like the MPA comes in, and there is a lot of stuff right now where they're like, eh, MPA, yes, no, because COTC, the committee on TCCC, they're constantly releasing updates and they're constantly like changing the guidelines, which classic is medical. It's really frustrating, but that's the thing about medicine is like it's it's the non-settled science. We're constantly learning new things and new ways of doing things. So like the stuff they're learning about MPA is that like they actually act size correctly. Um, and it always told like the guidelines always said to size them correctly for length, but guys were not being super concerned about too long. And if it's too long, it can go in and hit the epiglottis. And cause bleeding, which is the last thing you want in the airway, is bleeding. Um, which that can cause like a whole bunch of other issues, namely like mm -hmm. asphyxiation. Um, so like the first thing to try is like positions, like the whether it be like head tilt chin lift or like jaw thrust or like recovery position, anything like that. Um, but also like MPA because it is like if you know what you're doing and you're not a fucking idiot it's it's really hard to like not be a dumbass this is like the kotsi stuff is like it's it's written and they're like looking at this as like grunts are going to be doing these things yeah i didn't and, think like, you were going to mention not like, aspirating the... on their own blood i thought you yeah were mentioned it because they were like had oh you know open head trauma or no something like that no that's that's been talked the concern now that they're looking at with mpas is like it hitting the epiglottis and causing bleeding in what? like that immediate part of their airway. Yeah. It's there's like, they're, they're learning a whole bunch of, they're constantly learning shit. Um, it's like every six months they come out with a new update and like they slightly change something. Um, so size the NPA for yourself. Yes. Your size it factors. for yourself. Um, I've never heard anyone say that. How, how yeah. ridiculous is that? <laughs> Size it just, the it wasn't, in your IFAC for yourself. When, when you look at like the way that the army has been training it, the DOD as a whole has been training like medical personnel and like the stuff that we've been seeing, like we talked about earlier, like the golden hour at the beginning of the episode, mm -hmm. golden hour is a concept um, for anyone that doesn't know the golden hour is a concept that from point of injury to surgical care has to be under an hour. And that relies heavily on air evac assets. And there were times that like they would already have birds in the air as soon as they heard troops in contact. And they were just waiting for a 10 digit to like 
point their aircraft towards. Mm -hmm. Especially when you look at like Iraq, a country the size of North Carolina, it's pretty easy for them to do something like that. It also relies on the country that is flying that medevac helicopter to have total air superiority. Well, guess where we're not seeing this air superiority? That war in Eastern Europe. And so it's throwing this whole, you look at anything like near peer or above, like from a military setting, this whole idea of the golden hour goes entirely away. And the army's actually, to their credit, um, has been trying to get ahead of the ball on this one. And a lot of that's been coming from SF operating in Africa, um, where you have dudes there in countries that we're not supposed to be in with no vehicles whatsoever. And like there was a story where this, this SF team, they got a, a casualty and they like stole cars to drive to a local airfield, stole a plane, flew the plane to another country that was more friendly to us, and then stole vans at that airport and drove him to a civilian hospital. Hmm. And it took him like 18 fucking hours to do all of that. Wow. So there's a lot of stuff that we can learn from that. And that's why I mentioned the prolonged casualty care and the prolonged field care guidelines, because there's a lot of really, 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 really good information. And a lot of it's pointed towards like 68 whiskeys and even like 18 deltas. Um, and like 18, like you talk about MacGyver, like 18 deltas are like the MacGyver of MacGyver when it comes yes. to MacGyvering shit medically. Um, and there's a lot of like really cool stuff in there. I would recommend like going and like reading through and downloading those. Um, they're well worth it. You can get a lot of the stuff on Deployed Medicine. It's a website. It's also an app. Um, and you can find all these guidelines on there and read through them and, and like double check what I'm saying to make sure I'm not a lying piece of shit. <laughs> um, so. No, it seems good so far. Yeah. So that's that's Airway is the MPA. Um, they do, like I was saying, they do like every six months, they'll do an update. It's just something to stay on top of to make sure that we're doing the most correct medicine. Because um, that's the thing about medicine is like there really isn't a right answer. There's like the most right answer. Um, and so like we're constantly like adjusting what that most right answer is. Like if any of y'all are having an, a difficult time digesting what he is getting at there, like the reason the survivability and the average age of people in developed countries continues to go up is because we adapt and learn new things and we implement those medical procedures based on the new findings right from war mainly yeah yeah it's a lot of medical stuff has has been learned from war and, and some of it hasn't hasn't been directly dealing with um with with casualties and everyone wants to to point to the the germans but i would argue go look at the uh, the japanese because they were doing some, oh, some yeah. way way worse way worse medical stuff um Bro. and that's where we know like most of our so most of our anatomy we already had an idea of from like gray's anatomy like that the book not the stupid ass tv show um the book was pretty good on anatomy the problem was we didn't understand how everything worked we really learned how a lot of stuff works together like in a live human being from the japanese because they had doctors that because they were bored would cut open POWs just to like see how everything worked. Not because they wanted to like study and become like better no doctors, anesthesia. but like no anesthesia. They were just like, they were bored. Yep. So messed up. They were just, they were like, huh, I wonder what this would do. And they like cut open this guy and like look and see how his intestines work and how his kidney processes stuff. And that's insane. But that's why we know part of the reason why we know so much. Um, but 
getting back to the topic because that's why we that's why (laughs) we're taking this shit so seriously because i don't want anyone i know to have to deal with shit like yes absolutely um so after i don't want anyone i don't know to have to deal with shit like that also yes yes is it is it is frightening go go look and see what other countries that didn't actually like have morals did when they invaded other countries it's a it's a great eye-opener um so after airways respirations for that, that's where like chest seals. Bro, I'm worried about some shit we probably did, and we're not even aware of it yet. You right. Know? Um, oh. right. Um, so for respirations, it's chest seals. That's like if you have an open chest wound, you're going to want to put a chest seal on it. Current COTSI guideline is to use a vented chest seal. Uh, one thing to keep in mind with vented chest seals is that eventually they're going to become unvented because it's an open wound, and open wounds bleed and blood when it re- when it gets in contact with oxygen or technically when it gets in contact with anything that's not the vessel wall it starts to clot so that means it's going to clot the vented part of your chest seal so you kind of have to keep that in mind when you put vented chest seals on that it's not like an instant fix-all um so that would be like where you put the chest seal if you see a hole you always want to look for an exit wound um or another like wound on there because it's not necessarily always going to be gunshots that cause these injuries um and the thing i always talk about in class is i always like ask those that oh that's a good one an explosive Um, yes so like some shrapnel or something like that it's not going to form the same way that a a gunshot would where like like an eviscerated or something like for the the people that hunt understand like it's really easy to find the exit wound it's damn near impossible to find the (laughs) entrance wound Um, so like the gunshot wounds yes shrapnel wounds we have no idea what they're going to do because there's so many different variables with that individual thing that caused the shrapnel it's impossible to try to like well i can tell you that this type of shrapnel is going to cause we have no fucking clue because we don't Dude, know that's there's that's when i look at some of these variables. small chest seals and i'm like not even yeah. not even yeah. realistic well that's where you kind of have to macgyver things with like 55 gallon can liners and medical tape yeah, and just kind of make a, but also like if it's if it's that large, uh, I don't want to be that guy. But those yeah. are probably the ones that are getting the black tag. This is the triage. Uh, yeah, that's the, that's the triage better category. Yeah, um, <laughs> you're a no go at the triage stage. Yes, <laughs> you are an expert fucking no go at the station. <laughs> so that's that's respirations. If you know how to use a needle, you know how to use a needle. I don't really want to talk about it here, just because. It's, there's no point i feel like it's probably better off maybe not to even go down that road because so few people know how to do it and it's like in the partisan side like yeah i talk about it in the three-day course because it's like a it in like military side it's a cls level task um that's like the step in between so combat lifesaver cls is the step in between like everybody else and medics um you're not a medical personnel your primary mos is still your primary mos your primary job is still like whatever it is if it's a truck driver or like a, an infantryman or a tanker or you know a, a some random staff duty person whatever the fuck your job is is still your primary job you just have extra medical training in case something happens to allow the medics to focus on like the really 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 hurt people so it- and so like i talk about it in the three-day courses because that's meant to like replicate that same level of understanding what um in the military at least 
how many people get CLS certified? Because I was CLS certified and it was sort of, I mean, I didn't stay in very long, but it was my understanding, like everyone in my battalion had to get certified. It, so it depends on the unit. Um, for us, they want, I can't remember what it is. It's a certain percentage of people that have to um, be CLS certified. It's You'll see a higher concentration in the uh, line units and the tankers and the, the infantry units. You'll see a higher percentage. Generally, it's like one per squad at least um, that you'll see a, a CLS in that squad. Um, and then there's a medic for that platoon. So he has three CLS um, or two, depending on the size of the platoon um, and whether or not they're mechanized or light. But it, again, it, it's the whole Met TC thing. It depends on like the unit and what they're doing. Like you look at like a unit, like a Ranger unit, and like everybody's CLS qualified because that's how seriously they take TCCC. So all the rest of the DOD has like a 20 to 25% preventable death rate. In 2018, the Rangers had a 0% preventable death rate while running full combat operations. And that's all three battalions. That's not... Bro, we had... um, So we had 100% CLS in my platoon. We had a medic, and then we also had what we called him 11 Bravo EMT. I don't know if you're familiar with that. So I don't... He went through training. You get training somewhere else, but they... they actually an emt and he was sort of like the rto for the medic if you will huh it was pretty cool i heard a few other guys that have talked about that but you don't i've rarely heard about that yeah it's not something that we currently again it's probably unit specific stuff um with uh with with the airborne community it's a lot more common just with like for actual like combat airborne use like the attrition rate that you guys are expected to see that's kind of why like you guys do things the way that you do versus like just even like a regular line, um, like a regular leg infantry unit. It, there's some differences because of like expected just getting to the combat zone attrition rates. So one thing I wish you would have told me then too, is on the, the CLS, like the whole civilian nomenclature as well, like with BLS and ALS. Yeah. So basic lifesaver or life-saving techniques mm-hmm. cls combat lifesaver advanced lifesaving so that would have been a nice little side note for them to have mentioned to us because um eh, it's it's really not applicable to a military setting because a lot of the bls and als stuff kind of like i was talking about earlier with the differences between like civilian and military treatment there's there is a pretty significant difference between like the population subset and then like the the things that you're going to be seeing. Oh no. I just mean specifically from like, as a dumbass private, I was like, I was approaching medical situations from a March thing instead of like, just, (laughs) Hey, you don't need to like tourniquet. You don't have to tourniquet shit, bro. Like (laughs) it's okay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Relax. (laughs) Yeah. um, That can definitely do some get kind of hyper fixated on, on some of that stuff when it, when it comes to it. Um, I think it's just with the phases and the maturity level when you understand all the topics. It's like you get your concealed carry. You're you're thinking about it all the time, right? Yep. You get your your CLS. You're thinking about having to start a line under nods in the back of a Humvee. Like <laughs> never going to happen, right? Well, that the IV thing isn't a CLS level task anymore. 
What? Guys were hyper fixating on it and um they were doing that instead of like stopping the bleeding and also getting into like crystalloid fluids aren't the answer for trauma. Oh, yeah. Um and like blood over pasta water, which can like that can be a podcast episode in and of itself and like a walking blood bank program and like what that entails. But um that yeah, that's part of the reason it reasons together why they removed uh, IV skills from CLS. Make me feel old. Ed. Oh, yeah. I remember my arm went it flashed white because my yes. buddy Jeff poked so hard into my arm. I could not believe it. Yes. Golly. Um yeah. Terrifying. Yeah, that's 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 how I learned going through the, the sixty eight whiskey schoolhouse, learning how to do IVs as we learned on each other. Yeah. Um it was miserable. Okay, so what we have the um we talked about the the airway. We're avoiding the uh the needle. Yeah, it's finishing up respiration. So then next you have circulation. So that the thing with circulations is um or with circulation is this is where you're like converting this gets into like hasty versus deliberate tourniquets which is a whole like another deep dive you can get into for massive hemorrhage because that gets into like the phases of care for tc3 care under fire tactical field care and tactical evacuation care so like that immediate like on the x like the point of injury the only treatment you're doing is a hasty tourniquet which is high and tight and over the clothing because we don't really have the time to cut away and expose and see where that injury is. So then you pull them back to that casualty collection point. Um, and that's where like you get into tactical field care when you start March and that's where you start like cutting and exposing and seeing everything. And that's when you do deliberate tourniquets, which are two to three inches above the wound directly on the skin, not on top of a joint taped and timed. Um, because you can actually like you have the time to cut away and see exactly where um, the bleeding is. So in circulation, you're going to convert any hasties to deliberates. And then you're going to look at deliberates that you placed in massive hemorrhage um, and decide, well, can I switch this to a wound packing? Did I get too overzealous? Maybe this could just be a pressure dressing. It may thing that i always push with this is like the main focus is converting hasties to deliberates everything else you can honestly forget about you can I honestly, honestly just I don't leave hear a lot of deliberates talking about deliberates. that's a good point it's so like the big thing it always comes up is that like converting anything else to a wound packing requires a lot of like the term medically is like good clinical judgment the only way you're gonna know is by doing and like short of like me losing medical licenses and getting sued by a couple of four letter um, non-government organizations, namely like PETA, I can't like have you guys like in class treating live injuries, even on animals. It's kind of frowned upon. So um, you really can't like see exactly how hard it is to truly properly pack a wound. Um, and I've had this question come up in class that like if you don't feel comfortable packing um something in like the deliberate tourniquet or even if it's a hasty tourniquet is holding it and you're thinking about going to a wound packing if you don't feel comfortable don't do it because like the the biggest concern is like the level of care that we're giving the casualty and i would rather you do it the best of your ability than well the right way is to technically do this but you mess it up and then make the casualty worse 
Yeah. Because you like constantly kept messing up and they kept bleeding out more and more and more because you were trying to do it because you were trying to do the intervention the way you think it has to be done. If it's controlling the bleeding and you're happy with that, by all means, leave it at that. Now, like when we get back to RAO, there's going to absolutely be some follow on training. And I'm going to be like, if like you're one of my guys, I'm going to be pulling you aside and we're going to be working on wound packing because that is technically the most correct answer. But in the moment, I'm not going to yell at you for not converting to a wound packing. If you don't feel comfortable converting to a wound packing, if you were like, Hey, I wasn't sure. So I just left it. Hey, cool. That's technically the right thing. When we get back, there's going to be more training, not because I think you're an idiot, but because we need to make sure we're providing the highest level of care that we can to the people that we're working with. Hell yeah. Um, so that's that's circulation hypothermia where that really comes in the so the other thing for circulation um the one thing i also include in my ifax is a a 1380 the casualty care card it's a documentation form i've had a few people kind of like raise questions about it i think it's really important because it allows you to write down everything that you've done so that way there's no like forgetting something Mm -hmm. um and it also makes handoff to that next higher level really fucking easy because you just like you read off the ha- the casualty care card as you hand it to that person you're like hey you can see i did this and then they have these injuries and i marked it here and i did this thing and you flip it over and these are their signs and symptoms and these are their vital signs i've trended them three times here's that there you go they're your casualty now yeah it's a really cool. handy form it's documentation is so vitally important in medicine that it's really like it's overlooked by people that aren't in the medical field. And it's not like, Oh, well we need to make sure this is coded properly for insurance. That's not why we're concerned about documentation. It's for continuity of care for that casualty that becomes like so vitally important. Um, That's where documentation plays a really huge role. Um, So like documentation and then signs and symptoms. So that's like your pulse, respiratory rate, uh, blood pressure which can simply just be like a location which isn't accurate and that's a whole separate thing getting into like well 80 over palp really isn't accurate for a radial pulse well no it's not but if you tell someone they have an 80 over palp i know that they have a radial pulse because it's shorthand for radial pulse yeah if you have a radial pulse yeah then that means a whole lot of like it's not saying that like your systolic is at 80 millimeters of mercury it's it's that you have a radial pulse yeah that whole other part part of it is like a a whole separate discussion like if you can take a blood pressure by all means take a proper blood pressure with a bp cuff and a stethoscope but again if you can't and all you can give me is an 80 over palp or a 90 over palp or whatever the hell it is that you can give me by all means just give me that i i want the best care that you can provide not the care that i can provide because if it's you giving it that's not my care. That's your care. I want the best that you can do, not the best that I can do. I will give the best that I can do. And that's why like I have a higher level of training because that's the thing that like I'm supposed to do is to take what you did and then build upon it and then hand off to somebody else that they can build on and hand to somebody else and build on and so on and so forth until we have like a person back to fighting shape. Um, So that's like, that's, that's kind of getting into the weeds a little bit on some stuff, but so vital signs and documentation for circulation, 
hypothermia. Um, if you're putting them on a litter, which you should be doing in respirations anyway, because you're rolling them to check their back. We don't want to roll them too many times. So when you roll them to check their back, put them on a litter at that point in time. When you put somebody on a litter, have some sort of hypothermia prevention, even if it's just a casualty blanket. Um, if you have some sort of way to provide active warming, even if it's just a couple of hand warmers thrown in there, by all means do that. A really easy way to also provide hypothermia care, hypothermia prevention is a uh, the beanie. There was a reason why certain units had the beanie on the packing list 24-7. Because what's one of the major ways that we lose heat out of our body? That makes sense. Through our head. <laughs> you just put their beanie cap on them because it's in their assault pack. And now they're not losing as much heat. Um, another one of the recent changes or recent updates that Kotze did was specifically on hypothermia care. And one of the big things they hit on was constantly upgrade and improve your hypothermia prevention. So like one of the big things they talked about with um, either like stuff you're putting together or if you're using um, like DOD side using the hypothermia prevention management kit which is an NAR product. It's a like a one of those casualty blankets with like a hood and like Velcro to seal everything shut. And yeah, it also yeah. includes a uh, like a giant like body size hand warmer in it that it has no insulative properties. So like if you're going to be sitting with them or they're like going to go in the air and they're hitting like 5,000 feet, if you've never been to 5,000 feet in an aircraft, it's really cold like really cold at 5,000 feet. It's even colder at 10,000 feet. Um, once you start getting those elevations, it gets drastically cold. And so like what they're saying is to, if you can supplement that like mylar layer with something even as simple as like a whoopee or a sleeping bag, depending on your environment and how cold it's going to get. Because hypothermia is one of the main three for the lethal triad. And hypothermia affects your body's ability to clot. So in trauma, that's like a huge deal is like your body's ability to clot. And we don't need hypothermia adding to the mix of your body not being able to clot. That's a great point <clears throat> because, I mean, not to spend time talking on one thing. If y'all have listened to this much, you probably, and you're not <laughs> confused, you probably have a good medical, you know, foundation. But um, every, I mean, it's well known shock is going to accompany all of this trauma and hypothermia and keeping them warm is one of those critical shock treatments. So when you say it affects your clotting ability, well, I mean, just thinking about it logically, of course it would, that makes sense. And this is, this is the name of the game is blood loss for March. Right. So, I think it's no one's talk. I mean, no one's talking about on the civilian side, like fuck, keep a beanie in your med bag. Like that's a huge one. I mean, you just blew my mind with that because of course a ton of, you know, heat goes in and out from the head. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just, it's perfect. I mean, yeah, you're probably going to have, somebody's probably going to have a whoopee. You can throw a space blanket on them for the you know time being, like you said, it's not ideal, but, that how much space does a watch cap take up yeah nothing and that everyone can pack one in their ruck and it doesn't right. take up any room because that's that's one thing i will say is like i'm not telling like medics to put something extra in their pack because there's already enough shit we have to put in our stuff anyway mm -hmm. um 
that like that's one of those things and that was the whole idea behind the ifac concept is that it was like you're splitting the load out it's just like everybody carries like an extra belt of ammo for the 240 that way like the a gunner doesn't have to carry you know four thousand fucking rounds of belted ammo everyone just has like he has like two thousand and then everyone else has an extra belt so not only is he carrying less but now like the belt fed has even more ammo than it would have if he had just carried four thousand rounds right it's it's you're you're splitting that load across everybody and it it, it has nothing but a benefit for everybody else because how much space like you said how much space does a a, a, a beanie take in your ruck you can just throw it in the top flap of your bag so is that did we get through yeah that's 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 the march algorithm so that's like the way i'm going to pack like an ifac to get to like the original question when we started this um like i'm gonna i'm gonna pack like using that algorithm for my ifac so like i'm gonna have a couple tourniquets i'm gonna have at least two things of compressed gauze i'm gonna have some sort of pressure bandage Uh, i'm gonna have chest seals i'm gonna have an mpa Uh, i'm gonna have a sharpie i'm gonna have probably a roll of preferably two or three inch medical tape um and that's like my minimum for an IFAC because like, yeah, preferably you would have a 1380, but you can use the medical tape and the Sharpie to write all the information on and yeah. you can just stick it to them. Um, preferably, yes, some sort of like hard document that you can write on and then attach to them. But if you're in a pinch, the tape works. I've done it. Um, I like it. So going in a little bit of a different direction here and I can probably wrap it up here. So we've been going for a little while. Um, one large misconception I think a lot of guys have is that they'll never be a heat casualty or that, you know, oh, they've, God. they've never put themselves out there balls to the wall before to where being a heat casualty w- is actually a possibility. Yeah. What do you have any advice or like thoughts on that? Um, as far as maybe prevention or remedies for the average guy. So the biggest thing for prevention for um, heat casualties is acclimatization. Is just spending time in the environment you're going to be working in, which for us is really fucking easy because that's generally where we're going to be is where we're going to be when stuff pops off. Right. We're not like getting on a C-17 and, and flying across the Atlantic somewhere. Um, so we kind of have like that advantage to us, but you still need to be spending time like outside. So like spend time outside now, get an idea of like, yeah, you might have like cry pants and like a cry shirt, but I can tell you right now in the North Carolina summer, you're not going to fucking want that. It's thick and it's hot. Mm-hmm. You're going to want something that's a little bit more breathable. And that's where something like the, the old school BDU summer weights make a huge bit of sense. That's no joke. And like the Vietnam summer mm-hmm. weight tops. I love I can, those things. I can tell you right now, the current uh, improved hot weather combat uniform that the army put out is fucking money. Really? It's so instead of being like the blouse doesn't have a zipper, it's all buttons. Um, the I'm glad they shoulder, went with buttons and not Velcro yes, only. The, that would have been so stupid. The shoulder pockets are like the old ACU flap style, but they're buttons instead of Velcro. 
Um, the material is like very similar to like flight suit material. So it's really thin and it wicks moisture really well. If you get, even in, even in North Carolina, I had it in uh, Fort Pickett, Virginia, and we got like pissed on with rain. And within an hour I was dry. Just standing. And does outside. it have what the two chest pockets? No, it has no chest pockets because it's meant to be worn with a chest rig. Dude, I'm going to get this. I'm going to add pockets. I'm going to add the, the hip, like the front hip pockets and chest pockets. To so, it. yeah, yeah. Because um, the whole idea behind it, though, was from like they took it from because they were field testing it in uh, Hawaii with Fancy. the jungle warfare course over there. And so, like, those guys are wearing like more sustainment style stuff, like chest rigs and rucks instead of like body armor type stuff. So, like, yeah. chest pockets don't really make a lot of sense for that so it and then like the the shoulders are like raglan style i just got to be all fancy and different there oh yeah of course um but it's so like like even something as simple as like your clothing can make a huge bit of difference in like in summertime and like even getting down to like which type of summertime we're talking about because like east texas versus eastern north carolina summer are two entirely different things right um because like west texas is not humid at all it's a desert humidity is a game changer it's it's hot as shit but it's dry um same with anybody that's been to ntc it's hot as shit but it's dry you go to there's a reason why the q course has a higher attrition rate in the summertime than it does in the wintertime um because in the summertime it's so fucking hot and it's so humid that like your sweat doesn't do anything so um spending time in that environment is a big thing another thing and it was actually something they learned at the q course is you can take one of those uh like one of the water chests like water cooler uh coolers like the gatorade coolers and you can fill them up with ice and water and if someone starts getting too warm and this is more like a static position thing obviously um but if someone starts getting too warm you can have them dunk their arms to their uh elbows and hold for like and that will directly drop their core temp. Do y'all still, uh, still do the ice sheets? Yes. Yes, we do. Um, we still do the ice sheets for heat cats. Um, I've put them on quite a few heat casualties. Um, it works a lot better in drier climates than it does in less dry climates just because of like you don't have that. Because that's how you like your sweat works is like it, it's evaporative cooling. And if it's so muggy that there's no evaporation, they're not going to do as much um, but they're still definitely like that coldness of them is still going to help a lot um, but just like loosening articles of clothing if someone starts getting really warm <laughs> making sure you're staying hydrated and making sure your electrolyte levels are high um, and you can drink all the electrolyte fluid you want you're going to pee most of it out the way your body absorbs most of its electrolytes is through your food um, so make sure you're like eating a well-balanced diet yeah, dude, we had this um, guy when I was in basic training and we got back from our ruck march and this was in the summer in Fort Benning and homeboy just looked a little bit lost and sort of uh, just didn't he, he had no idea where he was at. Right. Just kind of wandering about with his ruck still on, like in the bottom bay area. And uh, next thing we know, he's just asked out, right? They get the ice sheets. He's off for a while. This this kid 
had an internal core temp of 107 degrees. It fried his brain. They brought him back towards the end of training and they let him wear the drill sergeant hat and everything. And he got to smoke the whole company and they retired him out of the army. (laughs) It's straight fried my man's brain, dude. 107 core temp. I saw with my own eyes. I was in the bay when they did it. They made all of us shut up and sit down. Jesus, that's yeah. I've we had a we had a guy that um he went down when we were at Fort Bliss, and his a gunner actually caused herself to get heat catted running around trying to find somebody to get him, and ended up on the because uh, he was one of the uh, one of the S three bubas, and like the talk got simulated attacked, and he went running out doing his thing, and the a gunner actually. Uh, heat catted herself uh, trying to find and ended up finding the scout platoon and they went up and they eventually like come by us to the aid station I go sprinting out there Um, we throw uh, ice bags on him like in his armpits and in his groin and then we take him back to the aid station Uh, it probably took like 5-10 minutes to carry him back by the time we get him back we uh, had to find the rectal thermometer. Um, once the we found bullet. that, yeah, we found that because like for the Welch Allen ones, like you normally see like the blue top on the thing. Well, we have a red top for rectal, red for rectal. Um, <laughs> we had to switch out to that to I make know sure why it makes me laugh like, <laughs> well, I've actually got a joke for that. It's like how you tell the <laughs> difference between a non-rectal and a rectal thermometer. <laughs> The taste. Oh, God. <laughs> um, so we had to switch that out because you don't want to use like a normal one for non, like a non-rectal one for rectal use because once you do, it has to become a rectal thermometer. Yeah. Um. So we had to switch it out for a rectal. And then by the time we got it in, this man had a core temp of 105. And it's been like 15 minutes since we put ice on him. Mm. And he already had like downed a whole bag of fluid through his IV line. And it wasn't dripping. It was a steady stream. He ended up taking four and a half bags of fluid before they like before the bird because they they air evac him out. They called in a bird for him. He was he was in a bad way. Yeah, he cat is he cat is no joke. So like prevention is definitely like the biggest thing you can do. Uh, work rest cycle is a huge one um, that's never like looked at properly. Like that worst rec- work rest cycle is if you follow that, you're not going to heat cat like such and such humidity and temperature work for this mm-hmm. much in this amount of yep. clothing and then rest for this yes. amount of time, drink this much water. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to, I guess we should probably end it soon, but um, do you have any funny or memorable medic stories you'd like to share? Oh God. Yeah. So uh, back to that, that heat cat guy. So like I said, he had a, he had a female a gunner um, from the talk. And she, so he was in like the shaded part outside the aid station and the a gunner got taken into the aid station. And my buddy was like leading the treatment team. And she's like, she hadn't quite heat stroked out, but she was getting like close. Um, and she was like fighting with the treatment team and they're trying to get a core temp on her and she won't stop fighting. And I just hear my buddy from inside Sharp. and, and Sharp. like, no. So like the whole, like the BC <laughs> is like outside with this kid and like the battalion like command sergeant major is sitting there 
like half the talk is like watching this kid because everyone knew him and like can hear this like fight almost going on and you just hear like my buddy from the eighth station if you wouldn't fucking fight it wouldn't hurt so bad god <laughs> and like you like watch like everyone's like don't laugh like everyone like has like that look on their face like it wasn't funny it wasn't funny don't you don't laugh don't fucking <laughs> laugh at that don't fucking laugh at that and everyone was fighting so because it was fucking hilarious sometimes you just gotta laugh it off man yes we had a um <laughs> dude i i can't <laughs> i know that look you're talking about <laughs> we had we were running this, we ran a cpr call when i was a firefighter and i felt so bad for this dude not because he was dead or anything i mean you know he <laughs> let me let me rewind this okay so <laughs> we go in this house and this guy is like he's down for the count and all i can see you playing on the tv is it it's it was so depressing bro when i realized what was going on it was the dvd menu you know how like it'll replay the same song over and over if you just let it sit at the home screen of a dvd and it was you've got mail (laughs) and i'm sitting there and we look around and there's chick flick dvds all on the floor of the dude's room and i'm like this man died watching you've got mail i was like oh <laughs> I just sit there. I look at my captain. He's just shaking his head, like, "Not, not now's not the fucking time. Don't, don't you do it." And I just tossed him. I tossed him what I tossed him. Uh, it was like the traveling sisterhood of like the jean pants. Oh my I, god! I tossed that over, and I just looked at him and shook my head. And he just busted out laughing. Couldn't even. <laughs> oh <laughs> my the things, god! The things you see, you know. Yep. But uh. <laughs> I don't really have anything else. I'm I'm now taking away from the conversation. Oh, so not at all. About that. <laughs> you oh, got anything good. else though you want to add for the for the people? No, not. I mean, that's that's everything. Uh, be careful who you get medical information from, because uh, there are yes. some people that don't have the experience they make themselves out to have. Uh, double check everything with the guidelines. Um, generally speaking, the people like that they won't they won't want to admit it so they'll publicly deny that they're yeah they're saying the wrong thing rather than say hey here's the links look it up for yourself yeah all right man we got we got to i want to pregame a few uh maybe scenarios and we can maybe do another one and you give me some insight i'll have a maybe a list of scenarios i could run by you tell me what you would do or what you think all right a good approach would be to the peeps out there sounds good all right, man. Well, you guys check out uh, stuckpigmedical.com and uh, put all the links in the description. It's been great, bro. I really appreciate it. And uh, until next time. Definitely. All right, man. Well, I will sign off and get this uh, trimmed up. Probably put this out tomorrow morning. Perfect. It was uh, <laughs> it was awesome. Awesome, buddy. All right. We'll take care. All right. Later. You too, man. Peace. Bye. Bye.